0: So it seemed like every eating holiday, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, all of the family on my mom's side would congregate at my grandparents' farmhouse in northwest Kansas. Um, It was kind of a small little house. It had a kitchen and a dining room, and they built on a bedroom for grandpa off the living room, and then they had three bedrooms upstairs. And growing up, I remembered this huge house. It looked absolute, I mean, in my mind, it was a mansion. And I go back to visit now, and it's like, it's very, very tiny, and it seems like I have to duck to get in, and I'm like, how in the world did we get so many people in this little dinky farmhouse? But there we would be, me and my mom, and my Aunt Phyllis and her husband and their child would show up, and uh, when I was younger, my Aunt Linda had had only two, she has three kids now, but um, she had two, so Linda and her husband and their two kids would show up, and my Aunt Evelyn and her husband and their four kids would show up, and we would all be there for this meal. Now, in the group of cousins, I am right in the middle. I am the youngest of the oldest, but I am also the oldest of the youngest. And sometimes that mattered. If I was considered the youngest of the oldest, I got to sit with the big people, right? I got to sit at the adult table. But if I was the oldest of the youngest, then I got banished to the kitchen with the kids. I love my cousins, but I did not want to sit with the littlest ones. I wanted to sit with the grown-ups. Having to sit with the kids was a punishment of sorts. Seating arrangements matter a lot. When you're nine (laughs) or when you're 39, they also matter a lot. At a wedding reception, the bride and the groom, they will be in the middle, the place of honor. And then right next to them, you'll have their closest attendants and then further away, right? Or have you ever been to a fundraising banquet? The more money you pay, the closer you get to the stage, you know? Buy a concert ticket. The more money you spend, the closer you get to the stage. Go to a football game. Spend a lot of money. Get to the loge and get to see everything. Right? And be fed. It matters. At the dinner table. You guys watch Blue Bloods, the reruns, and you notice how one guy sits on one end and the other guy sits on the other end? Those are the places of honor. That's where the patriarchs sit. I would like to see a couple of the wives, actually I'd like to see the kids sit at the end every once in a while, just to see what they would do with that. Seating matters. A lot. So, oh, did I not put it in here? Ah, are you kidding me? Really? Really? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Well, this is going to be a bummer. Because what I had planned was to show you what a... Uh, 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 it's it's called a trinclinium. What it looks like. So we're going to have to just use our mental imaginations here. And maybe if you stay for the book study, I'll show you the actual picture. Um, hmm. Maybe I don't know what I was thinking. So... A tranclinium had um, seats here, three seats here, and then three seats here, and then three seats here. And it looked sort of like this podium looks. And this side would be called the locus sumus, meaning it was the highest position on the right as you walk in. This here in the front would be called the locus medius, or the middle position. And this would be the locus imus, which is the lowest position. Now, the host would sit usually right here. And the position of honor would be directly to the host's right. And so this was the position that people are fighting over. They want to be in the position of honor. And as you go along this way, this person has the, quote, least honor. So that's sort of how they sat. And people didn't sit in banquet chairs with eight people around a round table or 15 people in a line or any of that kind of stuff. And they didn't even sit in chairs. They reclined sort of on their left side and they would have communal bowls and they would dip and there would be music and singing. And and these banquets weren't just like lunch at IHOP. They were big, huge, festive events. And... Interestingly enough, the further away you got, the worse the food and the wine became. So you kind of got the scraps and you kind of got the more watered-down wine on this side. That's another reason to want to fight for the closest position, is to get the better of the stuff, right? Well, we all want the better of the stuff. My New Testament professor, Dennis Smith, said, uh, you know, he he. His main thing was table hospitality in first century Palestine. That was his thing. Um, And he said that meals were a means of creating bonds between people. Where a person sat at a banquet made it very, very clear where he fell in the pecking order among the attendees. Place of honor? Place of not so much honor. Social status was important. Feasts were a major part of our biblical stories. Anytime you hear anything substantial about Jesus, he's probably at a banquet or feeding people or inviting people to dinner or serving dinner. So when we see social status being worked out, we see it being worked out around the table. And we have our social statuses today too. We might not necessarily congregate around huge piles of food, but we do have our social statuses that are reinforced by race, by class, by religion, by level of education. There are some of us, and I invite you to stay, who are currently reading pre-post-racial America. It's by a Disciples of Christ pastor named Sanja Jha. And in one of the chapters that we're going to discuss today, uh, or maybe next week, she shares a story of a woman who is trying to negotiate a position at the metaphorical table of society. She includes the story of a woman named Layla, not her real name. After 9-11, and I know this may come as a shock, but after 9-11... Incidents of violence towards Muslims increased. Did you guys know that? Right. Shocking, right? Um, She says, trying not to be too much of a sarcastic jerk in the morning. But anyway, so in New York, there were some people who were trying to get together. Because it doesn't matter to people who hate. Hate doesn't matter. It didn't matter if you were Hindu. It didn't matter if you were Sikh. It didn't matter if you were secular and not religious. As long as you looked like you were a Muslim you were going to be a target for violence. So there were a group of people who got together and they were going to try to decide what they were going to do against the backlash against Muslims. There were all sorts of people at this meeting and Layla was also there. Reverend Jaw writes that Layla was a part of this group, but she didn't wear the traditional outer garment and she didn't wear the uh, hijab or the burqa. And so she blended in really well. And she blended in so well, in fact, that the people, the the leaders of the group, didn't realize that she was a Muslim. And so when the question was raised, how can we quickly bring an end to the senseless violence of the wave of hate and frenzied violence against our Hindu and Sikh neighbors? The suggestion stunned her when she heard, well, we could print Red, white, and blue t shirts that say that Sikhs are a peaceful, loving people, not Muslim terrorists, and we could wear flag printed turbans. Jaw goes on to write that suddenly Layla realized that in this room full of South Asians who represented a mix of people, they didn't even know that she was a Muslim and they clearly saw Muslims as a threat. Maybe to their safety, but particularly to their reputation. They didn't want to be damned by association. Not only was she blending in a little too well, but her assumption that they felt a sense of community might have been a little bit too premature. She wasn't naive. Layla knew anti-Muslim and anti-Hindu biases existed, but she assumed that a community of leaders trying to address hate crimes functioned on a higher plane. Reverend Jaw goes on to write that When you arrive on American shores, you're asked in one million subtle ways if you find solidarity with the excluded others, or are you working to shed the distinctions and convince people with power that you're one of them? How far you are from the top of the hierarchy is often tested by your group attitudes and views of others closer to the bottom. In fact, distinguishing your group from the bottom is almost a pastime. Echoing and adopting the dominant negative attitudes and biases harbored towards the most socially excluded is seen to demonstrate allegiance to those at the top of the privilege chain. I would say that that's not just common with people from South Asia or people who are immigrants to our shores. Sometimes we all have a tendency to want to separate ourselves from the lowest of our group, aligning ourselves with those that we think have more power, those who can do more for us, those who can help us. And once or twice a year, we get to feel better because we get to invite to dinner those people who have been excluded. But this story isn't only about our individual salvation. The story is so much more than just being humble enough to realize that we don't necessarily need to set up ahead of the table. This isn't just a story about our individual relationship with God. This is a story about living in community. The message of Jesus in Luke has consistently been one of upending social expectations and social norms. Theologian Janine K. Brown writes that Jesus is telling us a story that is more of a countercultural message than anything. This is a message that addresses the fabric of the honor and status structures of the ancient world. Jesus speaks directly to his host, the one who holds the greatest amount of power and control over the game. Jesus' advice for this figure undermines the very system that upholds status differences this patronage system, she writes, a system that requires giving to those who can give to you in return. That's the way things are set up. Societal reciprocity, she writes, is the backbone of the patronage system endemic to the first century world. I would also argue that social reciprocity is endemic to our 21st century world, too. That's why it's important to invite those who would not normally be invited, all of the time, not just once or twice a year if we follow the example that Jesus sets before us in this story then we will not only question the way things are we will change the way things are because just the way because just because that's the way it is doesn't mean that that's the way it should always be